from PRX. Stew. Stew. Dear. Dear. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Well, don't be sniffy about I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... Ideas and solutions flow if you're just lying there. Telling really just an emotion through image and sound. Massacres are a lot like sitting through Godfather 3. Once is enough. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay. Sit. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner is... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The show this week is all about movies and previewing the 2017 Academy Awards. I want to start with one of the most acclaimed films in competition this year, the independent film Moonlight. For the ride, man. No problem, Black. I'll see you around. The film is up for eight Oscars, including Barry Jenkins for Best Director. But one of the most remarkable things about Moonlight is something they don't give Oscars for casting. There are two major characters, Sharon and Kevin, who in the early part of the movie are young kids. Be funny, man. Why do you say that? In the middle are teenagers. What you doing here? Detention, man. And then in the final part are grown men. It's not what I expected. Well, what did you expect? The filmmakers needed to hire six different actors to play those two main characters. So how did the woman in charge of casting respond to that challenge? A fellow casting director said she deserves a purple heart. <laughs> that was very generous. <laughs> That's Jesse Ramirez, the casting director for Moonlight. The film's set in Miami, and to find the actor to play the youngest version of the main character, Chiron, her team spent weeks looking for kids in South Florida interested in acting, but not so experienced that they were auditioning for theme park ads or making jazz hands. You know, if they have training to be very happy and, and expressive and if they had done a bunch of Disney TV shows, like, I think that that is difficult to shake that and to, and to pull that back. It was at a middle school near Miami where the casting team found Alex Hibbert. So I went and the director, he kept telling me to do it in different, like, different actions, like sad, happy, mad and stuff. And then he made this face. He was all like, you, you. Alex plays the youngest version of the main character in Moonlight, Chiron. In Chiron's part, when you go and watch the movie, if you go and watch the movie, he doesn't talk a lot, but his face expresses how it feels, what he wants to say and stuff. And for acting, you don't have to talk, but your face could say it all. Again, casting director Yessi Ramirez. Alex is a unicorn, honestly. Um, I think we got really lucky with him. He He's not at all like the, the character that he plays. Um, he's full of life and, and um, dances and moves around and just he's, he's a ham, basically. But there was just something really spectacular about him and behind his eyes. He was able to convey so much that was unsaid. You don't talk much, but you damn sure can eat. <laughs> That's all right, baby. You ain't got to talk to you, get good and ready. My name is Chiron. 
call me little. That's Alex Hibbert with Janelle Monet and Mahershala Ali as his unofficial foster parents. Yessi Ramirez was at her office in Hollywood when I reached her. She told me that for her and the director, Barry Jenkins, the hardest part of casting Moonlight was casting the teenage versions of the characters. That's the age when Chiron and his friend Kevin first get sexually intimate. There was a lot of actors that didn't want to take the risk because of the sexuality. And I think a lot probably had to do with, you know, the age level, you know, and not not being confident in their career that they felt like they could take a step like this. And, you know, whenever we'd reach an obstacle like that, I would tell Barry and, and he would say to me, yes, see, that's why we have to keep doing this. That's why we have to keep doing this. And does part of your job become a kind of... Uh, selling this idea to them or oh, counseling them like, oh, no, this won't ruin your career. Or, oh, definitely. Is that part of the conversation? Yeah. Well, it's definitely, I mean, you know, any project that I take on, I have to believe in it and be able to sell it and pitch it to agents and managers for their clients and trying to sell them on the idea. Hopefully now this will help them realize that maybe they should have done it and mm-hmm. maybe um, maybe in the future they'll consider um projects like this a little bit more seriously. I want to play a clip of teenage Chiron and his friend Kevin when they are stumbling toward their first sexual encounter. Sound like something you want to do. I want to do a lot of things that don't make sense. I didn't say it don't make sense. But tell me, like, like what? Like, what a lot of things. That's Jarell Jerome and Ashton Sanders. For the fully adult version of Chiron, you cast an actor named uh, Travante Rhodes, who um, physically is much bigger and stronger looking than the two actors who play him at a younger age. And I remember as I was watching the film, it, you know, it took me a couple of seconds to make sure, like, is that is that the same guy? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and, and so... Ordinary, I can imagine you'd think, oh, no, this guy is too beefy and to, to play this character. What was the idea that, no, 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 we would make him be physically different to suggest a, a, a life path that came between the two characters? Or, or was it just an accident? It initially it it wasn't an idea, um, you know. And when I read the script, like I never envisioned the character to be the the physicality that Travante is, and that is why when he came into audition, I had asked him to read um, the adult Kevin role. Um, yeah, the, because, the, the friend of, yes, of the main character. Yeah. Yes, Andre Holland's role. Um, and when he came in and started reading, he just had such a vulnerability in his eyes and, and a kindness and a sweetness and a um, just he just had such an emotional control of of himself, but in a way that gave you so much in the room. And I think eventually it made sense to us when we saw Travante come in and read that that line that was in the script before Travante read um, when he's talking to adult Kevin and he says, I built myself up, I built myself up. Um, it made sense to me that he built himself up. He created this exterior for himself to protect himself. Remember the last time I saw you? For a long time, try not to remember. Try to forget all those times. I started over. Built myself from the ground up. Built myself hard. 
And when he said those lines in the room, because eventually we brought him back, uh, Barry had then left to Miami. And so he came in to read just with me um, the actual role we thought he was right for. And when he said those lines, I, I, I teared up. <laughs> well, that's the thing. As you say, uh, the, the vulnerability that he showed as a little skinny kid is still there and all that. But then you see this big man doing it and it's just, it's all the more moving. Yes, yes. So – just a year ago, the campaign and meme Oscar So White was exploding. It seems like there's been actual progress the last year or two, including two acting nominations for Moonlight. Congratulations. Do you think there's been a change in the industry generally in the last year or two um, in, in people being more open to casting people of color? Well, I think films like this definitely help. I think it's about, you know, when I make lists of actors and when I audition actors, even if it calls for a Caucasian male in their 20s, I try to change it up and bring in um, some diverse options as well and, and try to present them in the best light and hope that that my creators and directors and producers um, see the the advantage as well. And do you actually get uh, scripts say that call for a Caucasian actor in their twenties. Is it say that? Um, uh, yeah, a lot of times. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when you uh, are doing your best to suggest non-white actors for this role or that role, are, do you feel like filmmakers are are listening more now than they did four years ago? I think so. I mean, I think it's important. Like I was saying before, that I think that we stand up for for projects. You know, if you're approached to do a project that that doesn't represent the community in its truest form, I think it's important to to let that filmmaker know. And I think um, I think definitely projects like this are are motivating and, and inspiring people to to make more projects like this. Um, I'm sorry, I have like three actors waiting outside. <laughs> well, that, what, what, what a perfect way to end this. Uh, thank you, so sorry. No problem. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was casting director Yessi Ramirez. And thanks to reporter Nadej Green and WLRN Radio in Miami for their help. Still ahead, our Oscars episode continues with the director of La La Land. I mean, this number, I think it's one of the greatest pieces of filmmaking of all time. The classic films that inspired 32-year-old Damien Chazelle, who could win Oscars for Best Picture and Best Director. That's coming up next in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. I'm in heaven. Studio 360. Hey, Pop. Mm. Can I ask you a question? How come you ain't never liked me? What the hell is your delay, Captain? We're waiting, sir. Waiting for what? Are you okay? I had another family. A mother. A brother. I can still see their faces. What happened? Why in the hell did you agree to do it? Because you asked, little brother. Okay, so that puts your landing zone at 5.0667 degrees north, 77.3333 degrees west. We're not going to be here that much longer. I'm not moving to Boston, Uncle A. 
I'm on the hockey team. I'm on the basketball team. I work on George's boat two days a week. I got two girlfriends, and I'm in a band. I'm human. I'm you. Oh, my God. This hour is all about making movies, and you probably recognized a bunch of those clips from this year's Oscar nominees. One movie has way more nominations than any other, including Best Director and Best Picture. In fact, it's tied for the most nominations ever. La La Land, in which Emma Stone plays an actress and Ryan Gosling, a jazz musician, both struggling to make it in Los Angeles. But I'm frankly feeling nothing. Is that so? Or it could be less than nothing. Good to know, so you agree. That's I like how the film is an homage to the Hollywood musical in its 30s and 40s and 50s heyday, but also very tethered to the real world with scenes that could be in a regular drama or comedy. I asked Damien Chazelle, who wrote and directed La La Land, to come show me some of the musicals that inspired him. He said that When he was a kid in the 90s, musicals seemed corny to him, and that his love affair with the genre only started when he was studying art film history at Harvard. It was something about the the juxtaposition of kind of studying that sort of stuff and then at, at a certain point rewatching even musicals that you know had probably been shown to me as a kid, certain Fred and Ginger movies or Singing in the Rain movies like that. And suddenly these movies that seemed very much like the epitome of Hollywood – confection, yes, kind of Hollywood kitsch. fluff, yeah. uh, suddenly seemed to me like these strange, yeah. audacious, yeah. experimental movies. Yeah. Um, and I became fascinated by an era in Hollywood where the studios opened up their coffers and let filmmakers make weird, avant-garde movies <laughs> in mainstream packaging. Because that's yeah. really what, if you look at the Vincent Minnelli Dream Ballets, or you look at a Busby Berkeley number, or you look at even some of the simpler musicals, like a Meet Me in St. Louis or something, right. or some certain Fred and Ginger movies, the way in which they revel in pure cinema, right. you know, where dialogue goes away and it just becomes about telling a story or telling really just an emotion really yeah. through image and sound is incredible. Um, we've got some clips from a few of your favorite movie musicals. First, Top Hat, 1935, music by Irving Berlin. I'm in heaven. I'm Probably the scene that Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers are best known for. Tell us what we're seeing. It's Fred Astaire singing cheek to cheek to Ginger, and, and now they're about to launch into their dance where it's just the two of them. In this gor- gorgeous, unreal mansion. Yeah. I mean, this number, it's hard to even describe it. I think, I think it's one of the greatest pieces of filmmaking in general of all time. I think what's so beautiful about it is it's not actually just the dancing. It's Ginger Rogers' face and how she... Even though there are very few close-ups on her face. Yeah, but it's it's she knows just how to register emotion, even in the wide, through her face. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but you're right, through the entire body, really. I want my arm about you, the charm about you. The, the whole undercurrent of emotion, I think, underneath this, it's, it's so much more, I think, sophisticated than people even give it credit for. And part of this is also the way the camera is choreographed. It feels like it just flows seamlessly from real life. Right. You know, um, no matter how fake it seems, it's Exa- actually very natural. So you're making this big musical. 
you, you can't adapt it literally and say, I'm going to do some shot for shot version. In what way do you, do you feel like I want to channel that in a particular scene of La La Land? You go, okay, well, th- this kind of language seems like it belongs very much to this sort of world, this utterly fantastical kind of world and this, this very obvious set where literally everything has to be kind of designed to a T and people right. break in a song, which right. would never happen in real life. What happens if you put that into a real location? What happens if you put that in the context of a very very contemporary story, just juxtaposing things that feel like they shouldn't fit together. Because uh-huh. otherwise it stops being interesting. I think then it just becomes a, an imitation. I think particularly of a scene fairly early on where uh, Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling's characters are courting and they're up, I maybe Mulholland Drive somewhere high up yeah. looking over LA. And it looks real. Mm-hmm. Was that real? Yeah. yeah. I mean, even, even the sunset. Like it was always about at every level, whether it's the locations, the casting, the story. It was about what happens if you take these older musical forms and smash them with reality you right. know, down to little details like potholes on the street or, 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 or gas spill stains yeah. on sidewalks or, you know, when it comes to the story, just the mundane daily disappointments of life as a young artist in L.A. You, you grew up partly in France. Your father is French. Uh, you've mentioned French filmmakers as influences, including uh, Jacques Demy, who was one of the less well-known uh, filmmakers of the 1960s new wave cinema. His best-known movie is Umbrellas of Cherbourg, which you've said is one of the films that inspired your filmmaking. But actually, um, when I saw the opening scene of La La Land, it reminded me of another uh, Demi movie, The Young Girls of Rochefort. I don't want to play uh, the clip from that film. Oh, cool. I know. Yeah. And here's a bunch of French people in 1967 getting out of their cars and starting to dance. Yep, right at the very beginning. So you're kind of announcing right away what what you're doing. But it's also, it's very low-key dancing. Right, they're barely dancing. Yeah, it's just this sort of like... Like this whole thing of stretching the arms in a kind of dance-like right, way. I mean, I had, right. I had uh, uh, Mandy Moore, my choreographer, and I talked a lot about that. Had some of our first dancers in the traffic number do that. I mean, you have to, the, the dance always has to be expressing something emotional, you know. Right. And here and in our number, I think it was just about expressing freedom. You know, you've been locked up in a car and then you step out. And that right. moment that you feel like stretching, that's such an easy, uh, easy kind of transition to a dance. Like one of the non-musicals, I think, or non-musical sequences that I, you know, was looking at a lot was the the twist dance in the, in the middle of Pulp Fiction. Right, where John Travolta and Uma Thurman are. Right. That's a great scene. Ladies and gentlemen, now the moment you've all been waiting for, it's a world-famous Jackrabbit Slim's twist contest. They really spend their time in just pure, uh, unvarnished dialogue for, you know, many, many minutes before right. that dance happens. No, 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 no. I do believe Marcellus, my husband, your boss, told you to take me out and do whatever I wanted. And now I want to dance. I want to win. I want that trophy. So dance good. And then the dance lasts a weirdly long time. And the thing about the dance is that exactly you get to kind of revel in it, and yeah. but you've earned the right to revel yeah, in it. So yeah, that it, yeah. it, I think that's the mistake actually that a lot of modern musicals make is that there's too many numbers, and you kind of feel like you get into this rhythm where you feel like okay, when there's not a number, I'm just looking at my clock waiting because I know another number is going to come. It should feel like a number should only come when there's no other recourse, right. and it should almost always come a hair later than you huh. sort of want it to because you want to be in a, in a state of wanting. That's just that to me is actually. 
Like that sequence gets at what musicals can do better than almost any actual musical of the past yeah. you know, 50 years. I mean, your film is clearly an homage to lots of different influences. I mean, you, you don't hide them. There, there's a scene in the film that seems relevant to this. Uh, Ryan Gosling's character, who is this crazy nostalgist for mm-hmm. jazz, and he has a chair that somebody sat in and stuff. <laughs> um, and, and, and this character he plays with, John Legend, not playing John Legend, tells him, you know, jazz has to be about, it can't just be about the past, it has to be about the future. Th- that whole exchange seems like it's probably relevant to the way you think about cinema, right? I do think, you know, in many ways, the movie, I think, is about Ryan's character learning that there are limits to nostalgia. That was a little bit the story of his character, but I guess it's a little bit of my story, too, in the sense that I, I know I have it in me to be right. to be a sort of uh, full-fledged uh, nostalgist. Again, I mean, all the musicals we're talking about right. here were made before 1970. So I know I have that bone in my right, body. Right. Um, don't deny it, but, but don't let it take over. That's exactly it. It has to be about learning from it, not just repeating it. Right. And it has to be about trying to figure out, okay, how do we take what was built and add the new addition to it right. and, and push it forward and actually make it relevant and urgent and timely to today. And speaking of, again, another contrast, and well, is this real or, or is it romantic and stylized? Is it modern or is it not? Or not, a, not an actual glimpse of sex in the whole film? Well, the sex scene is 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 the are the musical numbers. Yeah. I mean, th- to me, it's like uh, uh, it's kind of like again going back to Pulp Fiction. To my mind, you see John Travolta and Uma Thurman have sex in that movie. Yes, you see it through the twist dance and through the you know the good point the, through the needle to yeah. the heart. <laughs> yeah. So we don't we don't have the needle to the heart, but we have. I never uh, thought of that as a sexual act, but, but I could have, I get it. Oh well, now 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 I put that image in your head. <laughs> yes, so you exactly. Can, you can take that home. Uh, but the uh, I guess I find some of the I guess you'd say sexiest movies were some of those uh, co era movies where filmmakers couldn't just show sex, so they had to find ways to communicate show heat. and find these right. very sort of elegant um, right. methods by which yep. they would communicate that. And, and Lubitsch would do it one way, and Hitchcock and Howard Hawks would yep. do it another way, and the musicals had their own way. And, and um, it doesn't mean that every dance number is, a, uh, is trying to just communicate sexuality. Right. But or that you would, ne- you would never make a film without a sex scene. Exactly, yeah. exactly, right, conversely. It, it depends on what kind of story you're telling. But for La La Land, absolutely, I, I really want everyone and their mother uh, to, uh, to to see it and, and enjoy it because I do think it can be enjoyed by yeah. anyone. Well, and everyone could see it with their mother, no problem. Well, because I took out all those graphic sex scenes. Exactly. Uh, Damien Chazelle, it has been a pleasure and congratulations on a very, very fine motion picture. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was the director, Damien Chazelle. La La Land is nominated for 14 Academy Awards, so it's not going to be leaving theaters anytime soon. As I said, La La Land opens with a six-minute-long song and dance number that takes place on a Los Angeles freeway during a traffic jam, and it is completely dazzling. But some of the most impressive footwork in that scene is actually done not by the dancers, but behind the camera, literally right behind. A cameraman named Ari Robbins was walking between the cars, weaving around to get close-ups of the dancers. And yet that shot is as steady as if the camera had been on tracks or a crane. The smoothness of that would have been impossible back in the era of those films that inspired Damien Chazelle that we were just talking about. 
But then everything changed when this tinkerer named Garrett Brown invented a gadget he called the Steadicam. That was 1976. I remember it because I was just out of college working for a movie critic, and I recall seeing those first Steadicam sequences and thinking, wow, this is really amazing. And in fact, this bit of technology did transform cinema and television. Sarah Fishko has the story. In the film Jackie, the very first shot is an intimate, floating kind of camera move into the face of Natalie Portman. And throughout the movie, the camera follows Portman's post-trauma Jackie in an almost documentary way, taking us literally under the black veil, around to the back of the pink suit, into the limousine and the Dallas motorcade up a little too close for comfort and with complete fluidity, not a camera shake in sight. That's due to Steadicam, first used in 1976, and by now barely noticeable to many in the modern audience. I'm extremely happy that they don't notice it. Garrett Brown is now celebrating his invention of four decades ago. I love that it's just part of the fabric of filmmaking, and the, the skill of today's operators is extraordinary. Of course, the Steadicam was very noticeable when it was new. It was used, for example, to execute the spellbinding shot of young Danny in The Shining, riding his tricycle at top speed down the corridors and around the corners of the Overlook Hotel. Actually, that was Garrett Brown himself, following the trike in a wheelchair with the camera mounted on his newly created rig. Even before that, Rocky Balboa ran all over Philly, famously climbing the steps of the Philadelphia Museum and raising his arms in triumph. It was a triumph for the character and the camera. Garrett Brown was running right behind him all the way. Brown perfected the Steadicam while in isolation in a Philadelphia motel room. More on that later. He began his unlikely career in the early 60s, in the era of the Smothers Brothers, the Kingston Trio, Chad Mitchell. This was his duo. Wearing blazers and doing college concerts and singing bogus renditions of folk songs. That wore thin soon enough. We were in the second rank. We took the leavings of Peter, Paul, and Mary and so on. So he sold Volkswagens for a while, tried writing, and then found his way into advertising, where he ran into a verbal sparring partner named Ann Wynn. Hi, Miss. Hi. Do you accept the American Express card? Oh, yeah. And our badinage in the agency caused one of the agency producers to suggest that we knock off Nichols and May and ad lib a commercial. Oh, but you do have your American Express card. Yes. You didn't leave home without it. It's in the mail, fortunately. How lucky. Listen, the Nichols and May knockoffs turned into a long-running series of national radio commercials for clients like Molson and American Express, and that brought in enough money for him to explore the movie business. It was as a camera operator that he began to think about the idea for the Steadicam, which grew out of his own frustration with the shaky handheld camera work that was on the rise. Brown wanted to be able to execute those shots, but without the shake. And that's, you know, that's a very pure goal. The inventing act mainly is having a real desire for something and being willing to just fight your way through to get everything you want. 
Brown figured he had to separate the camera from the operator's body in some way to allow it to correct for movement, the same way our own brains and eyes correct for the way we walk, giving us a smooth view. He experimented widely, playing with all manner of rigs. He wandered the streets of downtown New York. I bought aluminum from those marvelous metal places on Canal Street and found a machinist in Philly to bang it together into a sort of T-shaped object with a camera in front and two weights, top and bottom, in the back. And that made incredibly smooth shots. That was progress, but it was still cumbersome and heavy. And this is where the motel comes in. He took a week off from everything else, including wife Ellen, young child, and all other considerations, and spent it holed up in there. He was desperate to solve it. It mainly was a, a almost a monastic enterprise. It was just giving myself one chance to think about it. Forcing yourself in that marvelous 4 a.m. alpha wave time, you know, when ideas and solutions flow if you're just lying there comfortable and thinking about things. After a week, time was up. And he had something. It made use of a gimbal, a time-honored device that permitted, for example, lamps on board a ship to remain stable on a rocky journey, among many other uses, a stabilizer. When it finally became a physical object, when a wonderful old machinist had made a prototype from my models and sketches and all this, and I started running around with it, it suddenly became clear that it was better than anything that I'd had before. The next step was to sell it. Ellen and I ran around all over Philly shooting impossible shots, which of course was super easy with the Steadicam. Impossible because we're looking straight ahead and running and there are no rails. We're on a vehicle, but you see no bumps from the road. One of the most striking of those was a shot of Ellen exuberantly running up the steps of the Philadelphia Museum, which shot was later more or less reproduced with Sylvester Stallone for the film Rocky. After that, hundreds and then thousands of feature films found ways to use it. Once the Steadicam began to catch on in the movies, television picked it up. The West Wing used it to solve the problem of how to move characters around the corridors of power. The celebrated walk and talk shots. Charlie, does somebody have my remarks? Sam's bringing them, Mr. President. Those couldn't have been done without it. Yes, why aren't they here right now? Yes, and ER before it made wonderful use of it. And then everybody started to do it. Once it's been done a thousand times, of course, it's on us to find new ways into that kind of a shot. And that's still being done. It's still happening, you know. By now, its effect is sometimes invisible, sometimes dreamlike. I think it creates a dream in us. Film writer and historian Eric Hines is a few years older than the Steadicam, but only a few. A careful film watcher and Steadicam contemporary. I remember growing up without understanding any of what shots were or what Steadicam shots were, but I think that when I would walk through the world and imagine I was living in a movie, I was imagining Steadicam shots. There was something about that. You know, the fact that I'm moving through space, that's me looking at the world anew because of the way the Steadicam shot captures the world. So here's to the Steadicam. It has certainly changed screen entertainment. It has probably changed us. Sarah Fishko. That was from Sarah's series on art and culture called The Fishko Files, which is produced by WNYC.
Coming up, one brave critic does the unthinkable. He declares his love and admiration for The Godfather, part three. People told me that I was supposed to dislike that, and they pointed out all the reasons. It was not at all plausible or realistic, but cinematically, it's riveting. Oh boy, that is coming up in Studio 360's Oscar special from PRI and WNYC. Studio 360. I'm a huge fan of the one Japanese movie company I've heard of, Studio Ghibli. They produced the animated films by Hayao Miyazaki. Those are the gorgeous, trippy, charming, one-of-a-kind fantasias like Princess Mononoke and My Neighbor Totoro and Spirited Away that are filled with children and magical creatures. Studio Ghibli's latest movie... The Red Turtle does feature one magical animal and one secondary character as a kid, but otherwise, it's a radical departure. It's about a guy who is shipwrecked and washes up on a desert island. It doesn't look much like any of Studio Ghibli's other work, and it was directed by my guest, the filmmaker Michael Dudok DeWitt. He spent almost a decade making The Red Turtle, Uh, a film I completely loved and for which he's up for an Academy Award for Best Animated Film. Michael Dudak DeWitt, congratulations and welcome to America and to Studio 360. Thank you so much. Thank you. So I understand this movie did not come to be by you hustling for the job and, and, and begging Studio Ghibli the way movies often come to pass. Yeah, the other way around. I mean, the most unexpected email you can imagine, a studio that you admire a lot. And they send me a letter saying, let's work together. Have you thought of making a feature-length film? Um, Because we like your short films, especially one called Father and Daughter. Which, until this film, is what you were most famous for. Yes, (laughs) yes. It won an Oscar. That that helps. (laughs) And they said... um, Uh, If you want to propose a story for a feature film, we would be interested to produce it. And we can't promise anything. We'll just try it. It will be a completely new direction for us to work with a non-Japanese director. They had never done that before. Exactly. So as soon as you got this invitation, you, my God, I'm flattered and I have to figure out what this should be. There was no like, ooh, I'm scared or anything? Um, No, my first question was, okay, I'm going to say yes, but I'm also... I must, I must have some, some seed, something to start with. Um, and I did. I, I had a seed of a story. It was not the story, but there was something that I could start with. What was the seed as it existed then? The seed was very simply uh, the very famous theme of a castaway on a desert island. And I knew that I wanted the castaway to stay there, not to... Be rescued? Or, yeah. Not to be rescued and, and finish the end of the story in, in another country, but that he, he, it would be a man and he would stay there and it would be a love affair as well. And so, turtles. Uh, why turtles? Why turtles? At some point when I wrote the story, I thought it needs a mysterious sea creature. And shark is out of question. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it came very quickly to, to um, a large red marine turtle. And Are there red marine? That's a real thing? They're brownish turtles. Okay. But in, in, this, in this film, it, it has a red color, which is yes. un, unreal. Right. 
And it just felt so right straight away. Uh, later, I realized why. Um, because marine turtles are, are actually, they're much loved because they're peaceful creatures. They, they're solitary. They disappear into into infinity because they swim for miles, thousands of miles um, and stay away for sometimes several years before returning to the beach. They've got arms and legs. They can breathe. They give the impression to to be immortal, right. which, which suits the story. And they do live a long time. They do live a very long time. <laughs> yeah. Yes, and same time they're not cute. They're not deer yeah. or, or deer or horses. They they are reptiles with a fierce expression yeah. with a beak. But cute. <laughs> so it's hard to discuss this film without revealing at least one big plot turn. Uh, so listeners, here comes a spoiler. Uh, when this castaway guy tries to escape, he is thwarted by this huge red turtle, which eventually and mysteriously turns into this red-haired woman. We never know, and I'm wondering what you imagine the the turtle slash woman is doing when she stops him from leaving. What what, what is that about? Yes, I I understand the question very well, and the film. Uh, consciously placed with the fact that it can be interpreted different ways. But is it about is is it an allegory about human love and relationships in some way? Like, oh, don't leave, I love you, but you know, no, I have to leave. You know, is it that? It's that, and it's um, it's also one of the main messages. Well, I wouldn't call it message, but the, the main things you feel when you see the film is my awe for nature, my deep, deep, deep uh-huh, awe for nature, uh-huh. and not not just lovely, lovely rabbits and lovely sunsets, but tsunamis, oh, and but tsunamis exactly. <laughs> yeah. All nature, rain, yeah. Um, yeah, and that includes just the beauty of the way light falls, and and it includes death also, and the the woman the woman in the film represents nature big time. She is she is totally nature. Yeah, and in the end, uh, the film has essentially no dialogue. People make human sounds, but there's no speaking. Yeah, it just feels that the people can talk, but on the moment we see them on yeah. the screen, yeah, they, they're just moments when they don't talk, right? But it doesn't feel like they, they, the dialogue is kind of pulled out with with lots of effort. Well, the fact that they don't talk also. Uh, adds to the sense of this is kind of a fable. This, there is some magic going on here. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, Japanese animation, beyond Studio Ghibli, is known for styles that have a kinship to years. Um, but Miyazaki, the great Studio Ghibli director, uh, does a lot of close-ups on people's faces and shows their expressions. Yes. That doesn't interest you as much, I guess. Exactly. I've used close-ups in some commercials I did, um, and they have their place. Um, but generally, I find um, animated close-ups often quite not very comfortable because basically our faces convey many more messages than we realize subconsciously. Tiny messages with our eyes, our forehead, our mouth, etc., and you can't do that in animation. You simply can't. You have to stylize that, simplify right. it. So the face becomes a bit flat. And and with a series like The Simpsons, perfect. Because yes. the, the the design is very simple and, and it's very extreme. Uh, and it's about the, di- the lines there. It's about the lines, yeah. yeah. But in, in, in my film, I found it uncomfortable to go really close in the face. And also, I really like the idea that you don't you don't need to animate tears coming out of an eye when someone is sad, uh, yes. etc. You can convey it in other ways too, in the whole body, the whole acting, the position, the light, uh, of course, the music. So that in, in, interests me. Well, what's interesting is what you've described as your motivation. It's it's like 
it's avoiding the uncanny valley completely. Not only are we not going to make digital, you know, reality, I'm going to like pull away so far that it's not even an issue. Yes. Yeah. And definitely avoiding uncanny valley. Yeah. Um, but it's also, I, I grew up with comic strips, um, Western European comic strips, and the characters are always small in there because of the page, uh, because every, every drawing is, is small. And that works for me. I, I don't feel close-ups are essential. Yeah. But in live action, I would immediately um, contradict myself. In live action, close-ups are fantastic. Huh. Well, Michael, good luck on uh, February 26th. Thank you so much. Michael Dudok DeWitt's new movie, The Red Turtle, is up for Best Animated Feature Film at the Oscars, and it's in theaters now. A lot of the time, the movies that are nominated for Academy Awards and win really turn out to be among the great enduring works of American cinema. But not always. There are the obvious but ordinary injustices, like in 2006, when Crash won Best Picture, beating out Brokeback Mountain. But maybe the most baffling of all was 26 years ago when another movie was up for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture. In retrospect, those nominations seem preposterous because it is a movie everyone loves to hate. Except this guy. My name is Ted Joya. I'm a writer that focuses on music, movies, literature, and popular culture. And my guilty pleasure is The Godfather, Part 3. Really? Godfather 3? The credits from the second Godfather are better than Godfather 3. <laughs> Massacres are a lot like sitting through Godfather 3. Once is enough. You like the third Godfather? I, I've, I've like never met Godfather anyone who liked the third Godfather. I will admit it in public. You've desecrated a classic film. This is worse than Godfather 3. Whoa, whoa, hey, whoa. Let's not say things we can't take back. Now, I have a, a, a different view of this film... I believe this is the essential conclusion to the Corleone saga. I think all of us, we remembered how great the first two movies were. And when we saw the third one, I'm sure I'm not alone, but the poor casting of Sofia Coppola really was a disappointment. Why are you doing this? Why am I doing this? You're using me just to pull the strings. Dad, I want this to bring me closer to you. And the Michael Corleone we see in the third part of the installment, he's beset by diabetes, he's got self-doubts, he's got anxieties. I don't think Pacino was ever completely comfortable in that role. When I'm under stress, sometimes this happens. To come to you on such a delicate matter was difficult for me. But I also see the other elements that really deserve more credit. I mean, there are extraordinary scenes there. There's an opening scene where uh, Andy Garcia... Uh, as Vincent Mancini has uh, two people try to break into his apartment, and, and it's a very vivid scene in how he deals with them and dispatches them. I want to do something to convince you. Don't get frightened. Don't do any sudden movements. Just watch me, all right? Do you hear what I said? Okay. There's this amazing scene where a helicopter tries to do a hit going through the ceiling of, of a hotel ballroom. I know people told me that I was supposed to dislike that scene. And they pointed out all the reasons. It was not at all plausible or realistic that if you were going to, to kill somebody in the mafia, you would not 
rent a helicopter. I mean, this is every step of it made no sense. But the actual experience to me of seeing that scene is exhilarating. I mean, remember North by Northwest, which someone tries to kill Cary Grant with with a crop dusting plane? Well, you know, give me a, give me a break. No one would, in their right mind would ever commit an assassination with a crop dusting plane. But cinematically, it's riveting. I'm a sucker for gangster movies. I'll watch The Godfather every time it's on TV. I'll watch Goodfellas. I mean, I'll watch these over and over again. I probably know a ridiculous amount of dialogue memorized that I will add lib in my own true life experiences from day to day. And these movies celebrate vengeance. They celebrate the vendetta. And the brave thing that Coppola did in this final installment is he breaks away from the formula. In the first two parts, Michael Corleone is able to wreak vengeance on his enemies. People have become accustomed to the gangster winning these battles. This is a very dangerous message to, to send to people. There's a moral lesson. There's a lesson. I know this word moral sounds very heavy, but there are lessons for our own life. The true story of the Godfather trilogy is not a man who does all of these acts of violence, but his attempts to extricate himself from the web they tie around him. Go on, my son. Go on. I ordered the death of my brother. I killed my mother's son. I killed my father's son. And I think people find that uncomfortable because they want to feel that Corleone will triumph. He will achieve all his goals. He'll legitimize the family. He'll get them out of... Uh, criminal business and into legal activities. People are rooting for him at every step along the way. He has to pay the price for his power hunger and for all the moral laws that he broke in his rise to the top. And I think him faltering and suffering so tremendously from all the violence that he inflicted on others, I think the story of the Corleone family does not make real sense unless you have this final installment. A bigger problem is the casting of Sofia Coppola, who is out of her acting league here. She's supposed to be Andy Garcia's love interest, but no sparks fly. Francis Ford Coppola's daughter had to bear the criticism and the pain and the suffering of him making this particular decision. And the, the odd irony of this is this is the exact echoing of what happens in the plot of The Godfather Part Three, in which the daughter pays the penalty for the overreaching of the father. Mary! So in a way, even in its flaw, The Godfather Part Three emphasizes the key message that you get out of the movie. I think audiences back then weren't ready for it. In many ways, I think audiences are more prepared for it now. When you look at Breaking Bad, the main protagonist started out with heroic qualities, but with each passing episode and each passing season, he became more of a villain. Skyler? All the sacrifices that I have made for this family. I believe the same thing is true of The Godfather Part Three. I spent my life protecting my family. Back when it came out in 1990, I don't think people were ready for a character that morphs the way Corleone does and is eventually punished for all his bad decisions. But nowadays, we're able to accept that level of sophistication. And this is a movie that I believe... At some point in the future, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, will be recognized. Just when I thought I was out. As one of the finest American movies of its era. They pulled me back in. 
Ted Joya's book, How to Listen to Jazz, is in bookstores now. And I should say, by the way, that even though it was nominated for seven Oscars, The Godfather Part Three did not win a single one. A reminder that sometimes justice prevails in the end. Is there a movie or show or song or building or novel or any piece of art that's unfashionable or unpopular, but that you love a, a true guilty pleasure? If so, record a voice memo explaining your guilty pleasure and why you think it's excellent and send it to us at studio360 at wnyc.org and we may invite you on our show to talk about it. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is a co-production of WNYC and PRI, Public Radio International. Our team includes Jocelyn Gonzalez, Andrew Adam Newman, Louis Mitchell, Daniel Guimet, Sam Kim, Skylar Swenson, Tommy Bazarian, Zoe Saunders, Max Gibson, Sophie Caddo. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thanks also this week to Kari Pitkin. And thank you for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, a political artist who never expected his paintings to be hanging over your sofa. I one time did a painting of Obama burning the Constitution, and then I sold a ton of them. And I thought to myself, where do people hang this? Ultra-conservative painter John McNaughton tells me what a Trump presidency means for him. Next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC.